Good to see you guys. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and get that open to Romans chapter 1. We're looking at specifically at verse 16. No, that's not an error or a mistake. We are taking a quick break from our year-long sermon series on the book of Romans to do a vision sermon series where apparently I'm going to preach from Romans. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, tell me you're reformed without saying you're reformed. We preach from Romans even when we pause from our Roman sermon series. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We'll get around to that in just a second. Um, but if this is your first Sunday here, we are psyched that you are here. Um, we are celebrating five years of being a church. We're just like amazed and standing in awe of the sustaining grace and the sustaining work of God to, to sustain this church through a, uh, a small, starting as a small group, through the pump station, um, through a rock club, through a jazz club, through the pandemic. It's just amazing to look back at these five years and be like, wow, Lord, not only did you sustain this church, but you've grown this church and matured this church and, and give and give in and bestowed uh, gifts upon this church. And so we're psyched about what God has done in Frontier Church. We want to look back at that and say amen, but we also want to look forward. And so for these four weeks, what we want to do is we want to do a vision sermon series really quickly on our exact values as a local church so that God fills this church with a spirit of, oh yeah, this is who God is calling this church to be. I have total clarity on it. I know who God has called Frontier Church to be, and I'm all in. That's where we want to be at the end of these four weeks. Um, a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I was having breakfast with Andrew Johnson. Um, Andrew Johnson's a sweet dude. Um, if you know Andrew, he's like one of the most encouraging dudes in the world. And he's also the, <laughs> the only dude in the world who would order at Perkins at 6.30 a.m. mashed potatoes and gravy. That's a man who knows what he wants in life. And, uh, you know, we were, we were talking. It was a great and encouraging conversation. But what struck me was um, after our conversation at Perkins, we went into the parking lot, and we each kind of went our separate ways to our cars. And as I reached out for the door handle and opened my door, I heard Andrew yell, Hey, Cole! And, you know, shut my car door. Looked over my shoulder, kind of ran to the middle of the parking lot, met Andrew in the middle of the parking lot. And Andrew said to me, um, Cole, I don't know if I'm going to get a job in the future, a different job in the future. I don't know if if God is going to give me a spouse in the future. There's a lot of things that I don't know about my life, but I know that God wants me at Frontier Church. When he told me that, I just, when he told me that, I got into my car and I sat down in the driver's seat I just rested more, like just rested my forehead on the steering wheel and just like shed a few tears of joy. And I think one of the reasons why I was so happy to hear that is because I, I would rather lead a church of 10 Andrew Johnsons who are fully convicted that God wants them here and are sold out on Jesus and sold out on the local church than lead a church of 10,000 people who are half-heartedly committed to the church's vision and half-heartedly committed to Jesus. So what I want to do is push for clarity, just push for clarity these next couple of weeks 
weeks so that God gives us a church full of men and women like Andrew Johnson who know that God wants them here. So we're going to celebrate five years of fighting for joy, and I want us to get clear on our four values as a local church. Now, to those of you who have been around for a couple years now, let let me explain why I just said four values instead of three values. In the past, we've stuck to three core values, gospel, community, and mission. And moving forward, we are not changing those values, but what we are going to do is we're going to deepen those values because as God has grown us and as we've matured in the Lord, he's deepened us a little bit to see exactly who he's calling us to be, and he's taught us some things. So moving forward, we're going to keep our three core values, but we'll be adding a fourth value, and then for the sake of it, we're going to rebrand those values because I used to be an English teacher, and language matters, and we've got to start every word with the same letter. So, um, Chad, you've got a little, ah, yeah, there we go. Okay, sweet. So, um, we, we, here are our four values. We fight for Jesus, or we fight for joy with the power, the people, the purpose, and the practices of Jesus. That should be memorable. You should be able to take that and put that in your back pocket and remember it at work and in the living room and at home. The power of Jesus, which is the gospel, Right, that's our, our former value of the gospel. The people of Jesus, which is his community. The purpose of Jesus, which is the mission to make himself known. And the practices of Jesus, which are the spiritual disciplines. I, I love these four values. I think that these four values, what they do is they form a holistic vision of a church that's wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. These are great. I, I believe in these values. These are great values. But these values without the Holy Spirit mean Nothing, right? You get those four values right, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. All you've got is a really well-behaved country club. But you got those four values. You got the Holy Spirit. I think we have a holistic vision of what it looks like for a church to set up a philosophy of ministry of being wholeheartedly devoted to following Jesus. And so we're going to roll through these. Week one, the power of Jesus. Week two, the people of Jesus. Week three, the purpose of Jesus. And week four, the practices of Jesus. And at the end of these four weeks, my hope again is that we have a church filled with Andrew Johnsons who are confident in saying, I know that God wants me at Frontier Church because if we had that that type of church, we could put a huge dent in the kingdom of darkness in our city. Amen? I mean, if we had a church full of that, we would be the city's most joyful people, no doubt about it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into it. Man, I am already running long. That's a lot smaller on paper. I'm going to pray, then we're going to explore our first value together this morning, the power of Jesus. Heavenly Father, Pray that you would meet us in this moment. This one. Not when we get home. Not tomorrow. Not when we get our act together. We pray that you would meet us with power this very moment. I do not want to preach about the power of Jesus without any power. And so the preaching of your word this morning needs power. Please provide it. And maybe even more than that, 
the listening of the word of God needs power. Let there be no lazy engagement with the preaching this morning. Let there be no lazy listening. Let there be no spiritless listening. Let there be no absent-minded listening. But grant us the power to hear your gospel and have our world just rocked by it. It's in the precious name of Jesus that all the church prayed. Amen. Woo! Okay. Here's a zinger. We'll start with the zinger. This comes from a pastor named Jared Wilson. Married fellas. All the fellas in the club this morning. This one might hurt a little bit. Jared Wilson, a pastor, wrote, quote, All the fellas in the club. I don't know. Swear that's not in my notes. <laughs> Quote <laughs> I remember one young couple sitting across from me in my study. The wife had reached out for marriage counseling, seeking to clear the air after getting the general sense of her concern. As a pastor, I asked her to be as practical as she could be about what her husband could do to show he loved her. And she said, Quote, I know he's exhausted when I come home from work, but I'm exhausted too. And what I would love is for him to take the kids into the living room and play with them so I can prepare the dinner and wash the dishes without having them hang all over me, end quote. I looked at the young husband for his response to this request. And do you want to know what this this man said? He said, quote, do you have a book that I can read? I said, A book? Dude, you don't need a book. Your book is sitting right next to you. She just said what she'd like you to do. I heard it. You heard it. And not for the first time. Son, you know what to do. You just don't want to do it. Your problem is not a lack of information, but a lack of heart. What you lack is not clarity. What you lack is the power to want to do it. End quote. What you lack is not clarity. What you lack is the power to do it. I think when it comes to following Jesus, a lot of times, this is us. We have clarity on what God desires from our lives. We have a Bible. We have the scriptures, the revealed will of God, 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament. God has, in many ways, laid out exactly what he demands from us. And many times when it comes to following Jesus, You know what to do, you just don't want to do it. What you lack is not clarity, what you lack is power. So what does it look like to be a church that's filled with power? How do we get there? Where do we plug our lives into? Where's the outlet? Where do we get this power? Let's stand for the reading of the word of God, and Paul's going to make this clear in Romans 1. 
Paul says, quote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the power of God onto salvation for all who believe. You guys can have a seat. Lots of ways that Paul could have finished this train of thought in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and he still would have been right. Paul could have said in Romans chapter 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the message of God onto salvation. And if Paul had described the gospel that way, he would, he would be correct. He would be right. The gospel is a message. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, being crucified in your place for the forgiveness of sins and the very gift of his very own righteousness. You better bet your bottom dollar that the gospel is a message. That's just not what Paul says, right? Paul could have said in Romans 1.16, Paul could have said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the story of God about salvation. And Paul would have been right if he had said that. The gospel is a story. It's a story about the triune God and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, taking on flesh, coming to earth, living a sinless, flawless life, living the perfect life that you and I could not live, overthrowing Satan, overthrowing demons, casting out demons, healing people, teaching people, and then dying the death that we deserve so that we could have our sins forgiven and his very own righteousness given to us. You better believe that the gospel is is the story of salvation. It's just not what Paul says in Romans 1.16. What's Paul say in Romans 1.16? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the what? I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God onto salvation. You get a little bit more of a sense of this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a different book in the New Testament that the same author Paul wrote. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, what he's doing is he's He's contrasting the law, what God demands of us, what we ought to do for God, with the gospel. And what Paul ends up saying in 2 Corinthians 3 is that the law is the ministry of condemnation, his words, not mine, and the gospel is the ministry of the Spirit. That'll blow your mind if you think about it, because the law is good. The law is awesome. It tells us what we ought to do. It tells us how to obey God in the way that God wants to be obeyed. The psalmist in the Old Testament says, bro, thinking about the law of God gives me so much ecstasy, I can't go to sleep at night, right? He's like daydreaming about it and fantasizing about the law, meditating on the law day and night. The law is awesome. It expresses the character of God. It expresses the demands of God. It expresses the commandments of God. But when the law is preached without the gospel, it's condemnation. It's like, it's like giving a car without gas directions. It's helpful. The car can't go anywhere. All we're doing, if we're preaching law 
here's this, here's that, here's religion, here's how to obey God. Without gospel, all we're doing is we're telling people without power what to do if only they had power, but they don't have the power to do it. Like I said, it's a lot like preaching the law without gospel is like giving directions to a car without gas. It can't go anywhere. The car can't go anywhere without gas. I don't care if there's a GPS inside of the car. The car can't go anywhere without gas. I don't care if there's a mountain of maps inside of the car. You can't go anywhere without the gospel. I don't care if there's a mountain of law in your heart. I don't care if you've got the Ten Commandments memorized. I don't care if you've got the Old Testament memorized. Without living an act of faith in the gospel, you do not have the power to obey God. So to preach the law of God without the gospel is to tell powerless people what they cannot do. And that, of course, is just another way of saying that it's heaping condemnation on God's people. The implications of this are pretty mind-blowing, right? Because there's a lot of churches out there that have a lot of religion and not very much gospel. Here's how to be a well-behaved person. Here's how to clean your act up. Think about the implications of that. That's law without gospel. This is mind-blowing because according to Paul, what is really good Bible teaching without the gospel? Condemnation. What's really... What do you call really inspiring worship music, really uplifting worship music without the gospel? Condemnation. What do you call a really well-behaved Christian kid who doesn't believe the gospel? A child of condemnation. What do you call a church that loves religion but doesn't celebrate the gospel in its life? First Baptist of First Baptist Church of Condemnation. Second Presbyterian Church of Condemnation. It doesn't matter if there's no gospel, it's condemnation. What do you call a pastor who's really encouraging and really uplifting and really charming but doesn't serve as church with the gospel? That bro is a minister of condemnation. I don't care how skilled he is if there's no gospel. There's actually no more effective way for a pastor to condemn his church than to stand in front of them week after week after week and preach religious things without Jesus' gospel. A pastor could not better condemn his church if he stood behind God's pulpit and threw a middle finger to the church for 45 straight minutes that would condemn the church less than preaching the law without gospel. That would pale in comparison to the condemnation that would come from a pastor who gets most things right about religion, but is silent about the gospel. And so you'd better believe that this forms the values of this church. You better believe that this forms the way that we do church. This forms the leadership in the church, right? Our pastoral team is not a a team that's composed of perfect leaders. It's not a team that's composed of highly likable people. It's not composed of people who are pretty charming and mostly understand religion. Our pastoral team is composed of men who are committed to preaching the gospel to you week after week after week, no matter what text we're in, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Testament. And that means that our community group leaders are people who are committed to shepherding you in the gospel week after week after week. And that means that our fighter group leaders are committed to discipling you in the gospel week after week after week. And you better believe that we're not going to get tired of telling you that Christ was crucified for you. I'm not going to get tired. I don't care if you 
I don't care if you tune out when I say it. I don't care if your eyeballs glaze over and you think, oh, here's Cole again telling us that Jesus loves us because he was crucified. Sure, okay, tell me something else, Cole. We will not grow weary of preaching the gospel. And we will not grow bored of preaching the gospel. And if you grow bored of hearing the gospel, what that tells me is that you are just beginning to understand the very elementary things about the gospel. And if you're just beginning to understand the very elementary things of the gospel, then the solution to your gospel boredom is not less gospel, it's more gospel. Amen? You're bored of being told that the God of the universe came in the flesh and was crucified in your place. The problem is not that we preach the gospel too much. The problem is you don't hear the gospel. So we're going to preach. Here's Martin Luther, actually. This is not like a, sometimes when you hear like, oh, gospel-centered church, that's kind of like a new, like, I don't know, branding thing in Christianity. It's not. Here's Martin Luther 500 years ago. He said, quote, most necessary is it that we should know the gospel well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. I like UFC. So I like that when, when when Martin Luther says, let's beat the gospel into our heads continuously. And so let's get ourselves on track here and let's just kind of roll up our sleeves and get a little bit more practical. So far, all I've said really is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so we had better, if we want to be a church with power, we have to center ourselves on the gospel. And so it's a really natural question, and I think it's the right question to ask, okay, well, what does a gospel, like, what's a gospel-centered church look like and feel like? If I belong to a gospel-centered church, how do I really know that? And so as we kind of move forward into this and, and, and think about this, what I want to do is I want to aim for clarity by giving us six marks of a gospel-centered church. It broke my heart not to be able to reduce it to five. You know, five is just the way you do things when you got a pulpit. And I just couldn't get it down. So I got down from about 10 to six. And as we work our way through these six marks of a gospel-centered church, what I want you to do is I want you to use all of your imagination muscles, right? I want you to use all of your dreaming muscles. As we work our way through these six marks of a gospel-centered church, I want you to be able to see it in your mind's eye. I want you to be able to smell it so that you know what to aim for. So six marks of a gospel-centered church. Mark number one, in a gospel-centered church, the gospel is celebrated in every area of the church's life. Um, This is an important distinction, every area of the church's life. Now, this might be a little bit technical for some of you, but I think it's really helpful as a leader. There's a technical difference. When we say we're a gospel-centered church, there's a technical difference between being a church that believes in the gospel, but kind of takes it for granted, you know, and being a gospel-centered church. And here's the distinction. I've got a graph for the non-gospel-centered church. Chad, you want to show us that? This is, this is what it looks like and feels like to be a part of a church that doesn't center itself on the gospel. Usually, a church is made up of three components, church, small group, and relationships. Your relationships are mostly just, you, you like people, right? That's good. Your small groups. You talk about religious stuff and spiritual stuff. That's good. Church on Sunday mornings? 
You sing some songs, and you hear some preaching from the Bible, and that's good. And then you see this little red X right here? That's the gospel. You know, like we just kind of like live the Christian life to the best of our ability. And then, you know, once a month, the pastor preaches the gospel and has kind of an altar call. And that's good because we believe the gospel. So how is Frontier Church different than this? Chad's got another graph for you. Here's, here's our philosophy of ministry. Our church has three components, the Sunday gathering, community groups, and fighter groups. The gospel is not just something that I preach once a month with an altar call for people who don't believe in the gospel. The gospel is the ocean that our entire church swims in. So when you come to our Sunday gathering, you're always going to hear the gospel preached no matter what text we're in. You're always going to sing the gospel no matter what worship songs Joseph chooses. You're always going to confess the gospel in liturgy, no matter what liturgy Casey writes. Every Sunday we take communion together because we participate in the gospel. And then if you get plugged into a community group, your community group leaders have been trained to shepherd you with the gospel. And if you get plugged into a fighter group, your fighter group leaders have been trained to disciple you and remind you of the gospel. So another way of thinking about this, one Christian leader says, quote, this is really good, quote, The gospel is not one class you take in Christianity. The gospel is the building where all the classes of Christianity take place in. That's helpful, right? So here's mark number two. Mark number two of the gospel-centered church. Oh, Zach, you're bothering my slides guy back there. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Mark number two, in a gospel-centered church, the church is marked by people who are absolutely obsessed with Jesus. Jesus is the character at the very center of the gospel. He's the one on the cross. He's the one who's doing the atoning work. He's the one who's overthrowing the powers and principalities. And since Jesus is the hero of the gospel, our church members should always be talking about how much we love Jesus and how much Jesus is our hero and how much we want to follow Jesus. Hopefully around here, you should hear people talking by saying, oh yeah, Jesus this and Jesus that. We love Jesus. Mark number three of the gospel-centered church. A gospel-centered church is marked not just by a passion for Jesus, although that's true, but also by a passion for the Bible. And what I've seen in our church really testifies to this. Um, But what I've noticed is that when a church blasts the gospel on repeat on the loudest volume possible, what ends up happening is the church becomes confident that Jesus' death is so totally sufficient to unshakably purchase the love of God for them so that people become so convinced of God's love that they never or they no longer fear the Bible right? And so people can open up the Bible and they no longer fear the commandments in there. They no longer fear the demands in there. And so they no longer fear the hard part in the Bible. And so we no longer open our Bibles worried that we'll bump into something we disagree with. We open up our Bibles in total submission to God because we know he loves us because of the gospel. And so we know he wants what's best for us. And so we're not worried about bumping into something that's bad for us. Mark number four, a gospel-centered church is marked by gospel fluency in all of life. That was a little tougher. Let me explain. Um, Gospel-centered theology, this thinking about God that consistently comes back to the gospel, 
Gospel-centered theology, what it does is it often begins with the leaders in the church and in the pulpit and in the worship songs and in the leadership, but its aim is never to stay in leadership. The aim of gospel-centered theology is to take root in all the members of a church so that applying the gospel in everyday situations just becomes totally normal, not just among pastors, but also among deacons and also among church members. So here's the way that one, one theologian says this. Jeff Vanderstelt says, quote, Gospel-centered people listen to their own thoughts and hearts and think, how is this thought in line with the gospel? How is this thought out of line with the gospel? Gospel, Gospel-fluent people listen to others and they think, well, what about Jesus and his work might be good news to this person today? Um, I've, I've found that as the gospel has taken deeper and deeper root in my heart, as the church has beaten it into my head continuously, is that what I've experienced is a type of inner transformation that changes what goes on in my heart when I bump into difficult situations in everyday life. Chad, we've got a graph for this. I think it's natural when you bump into everyday situations in life to begin in the upper right-hand quadrant right here, to just naturally kind of have, to kind of have a, a victimhood complex, you know? I guess that's natural to me. I bump into a difficult experience and I think, poor me, how is this unfair and how am I the victim? What I've noticed is that when the gospel gets spoken to me more and more and goes deeper, I tend to go to the bottom right quadrant, which isn't victimhood, it's acceptance. And I, and I tend to be a little bit more cool-headed when I bump into these difficult situations and I tend to accept them better, saying things like, shrug, Oh, well, worse things have happened to better people. And that takes some maturity. But the more the gospel takes root in my heart, I tend to, tr- I tend to mature into the bottom left-hand corner of the quadrant, which is a type of God awareness. You bump into a difficult situation and you think, you know, God is in this somehow, some way. I'm not really sure. That takes maturity, but there's nothing uniquely Christian about that way of thinking yet. You could be Jewish and think that, right? You could be Buddhist and think that. What I've noticed though, when the gospel of Jesus takes deeper root in my heart, is that I have the tendency to mature into the upper left-hand quadrant, which is gospel fluency. I bump into a difficult situation and I think, How does this remind me of the gospel? Oh my gosh, Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. And if Jesus was crucified, what makes me think I wouldn't endure the cross on a daily life? I tend to think, how might God actually be conforming my life to be lived in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? That's gospel fluency right there. And the more a church preaches the gospel, the more it becomes filled with church members who do this in everyday life. So here's the the fifth mark of gospel-centered church. A a gospel-centered church is marked not just by gospel fluency in individual believers, it's also marked by gospel fluency in relationships. Gospel-centered theology often believes, like it often belongs in the individual's heart. It begins there, 
But then what it should do is it should work its way out from the heart into our friendships and relationships because the gospel forms not just the way that we see ourselves, the gospel forms the way that we see others. And once it begins to form the way that we see others, it begins to form that we relate to other people. It begins to form the nitty grittiness of our friendships. And all of a sudden, the gospel takes deeper root in your life and you often experience this type of transformation in the way that you relate to other people. Your relationships often begin in the upper right-hand quadrant, which is, you know, just imagine you're having a conversation with a church member about something difficult. It's natural to begin in the upper right-hand quadrant and to just be kind of a judgmental person. You think, oh, I can't believe she did that. That sin? I can't believe he struggles with that. And as you hear how Jesus dies for sinners more and more, you tend to mature into the bottom right-hand quadrant, which is empathy. You tend to hear people confess really nasty things. You tend to see people sin in really spectacular ways, and you gain the maturity to have some empathy. Hey, tell me more about that situation. I want to understand and listen really well to you. That takes maturity. But the more... You believe the gospel. The deeper root it takes in your heart, the more you mature into the bottom left-hand quadrant, which is you become helpful. You begin to want to speak words of life into that person's life, and that's so helpful. You begin to think, hey, can I give you maybe some good advice that's been helpful to me? But a gospel-centered person never ends with good advice. They end with good news. And so the deeper root the gospel takes in your heart, the more God matures you into the upper left-hand quadrant, which is gospel fluency. You begin to think, how might I remind this person of the gospel? This person needs good advice, but more than that, they need good news. How can I give this person good news in their bad circumstances? Sister, brother, can I just tell you that Jesus loves you and he was crucified in your place? That's gospel fluency right there. We doing okay? This is a little more luxury than usual, right? You guys just kind of seem far away from me right now. But we're doing okay? Mark number six. We're almost home. Lastly, in a gospel-centered church, the church is marked by power. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God onto salvation. Boredom with the gospel, gospel amnesia, forgetting the gospel is the root of all church powerlessness. It's just true. Like wherever the church yawns in the face of the gospel and becomes bored with the finished work of the crucified Christ, that church usually begins the sad, long process of committing church suicide in slow motion. What ends up happening is that the glorious preaching of the gospel of Jesus ends up getting replaced by TED Talks directed at felt needs. The full-throated singing of the gospel in formative spiritual worship songs ends up getting replaced by entertainment. The participation in the gospel of the bread that represents the body of Jesus and the wine that represents the blood of Jesus, this beautiful ancient gospel tradition of communion just ends up getting replaced by stupid and silly skits. And what ends up happening over the long haul is that ultimately the church that forgets about the gospel gets replaced by being a religious country club and God has not promised to give his power to to country clubs. 
God has not promised to dwell in country clubs. Jesus did not promise to build the country club. He promised to build the church. And I don't mean to sound critical of other churches and other church philosophy of ministries, but for the sake of clarity, we need to get clear on what it means to be a gospel-centered church, and we need to be clear on who God is calling us to be. And that requires that we be honest about the fact that 95% of modern Christians are drinking sugar from a fire hose on Sunday mornings rather than confronting the power of God in the preaching of Jesus' gospel. And after these churches spoil the children by stuffing them full of nothing but spiritual sugar, They push these Christians out into everyday life and then act surprised by the total and utter absence of spiritual power on Monday through Saturday. And it's crazy. We act surprised when the effect is congruent with what happens when you stuff a child full of sugar and then you push him onto the baseball field and he goes down and sits on the bench and puts his head between his legs and vomits everywhere because he has a sugar crash. That's a picture of modern Christianity. We fill people with spiritual sugar and then we act surprised when we see sugar crash Christianity rather than biblical Christianity, right? And so we guys, we gotta have a vision and a beautiful vision and an awesome vision of being a church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus and filled with Jesus's power. This church, if we can be that church, if we can grow into that church, this church gathers together Sunday after Sunday and they sing the gospel in worship and they participate in the gospel in communion and they confess the gospel through liturgy and they feast on the gospel in the preaching of God's word and in every area of the church's gathering, they make contact with the gospel and this fills them with power. You can be filled with power. Did you know that? You can be filled with power. The gospel-centered church is filled with power so that when the church leaves on Sunday morning, when they say, peace be with you, the gospel goes out with each individual member from this jazz club in power. And that means that the single mother who struggles with confidence engages in a delicate conversation with another church member suffering on the way out. And she feels that gentle but unmistakable nudge from the Holy Spirit to pray for that woman, not later, but now. And as she gets ready to pray for that woman, she feels feels that unmistakable old familiar feeling of the fear of man spread over her and she begins to worry about what the fear of man, she begins to worry about what man might think of her if she prays in that moment where does she get the power to pray in that moment she speaks the gospel to herself. She reminds herself that Christ was crucified for her sins and has clothed her in power. And so the gospel-centered church member crucifies her people-pleasing and she says, can I lay a hand on you and pray for you right now, sister? This is what happens. Or the father who comes home exhausted after work and he listens to his wife's needs when she says, I just need you to get on the floor and play with the kids while I get dinner ready. This man does not look at his wife and say, do you have a book that can teach me how to do that? Right? Men, if this is you, what you lack is not clarity. What you lack is power. And so this husband, when his wife is clear with her needs, 
This husband speaks the gospel into his life. Yes, he's exhausted. Yes, he's tired. But rather than asking for a book, he reminds himself that Jesus was crucified in his place and has clothed him with power. And the gospel gives him the energy of Christ to live the very life of Christ. And so in that moment, the gospel gives him to do, it gives him the power to do the most holy and God-glorifying thing he could do in that moment. The gospel-centered dad gets his butt on the floor and he plays with his kids. And when a church is filled with women like this and men like this, the church is filled with power. And I just think that we can get there. Like I have a vision for that. We have a vision for this church. We can see it. We can taste it. We can smell it. And to be honest with you guys, the modern church right now is not known for her power. She's known for being judgmental. She's known for her hypocrisy. She's known for her gossip. She's known for splitting hairs over every opinion. She's known for getting into arguments on social media all the time. She's known for manipulating and abusing human beings and then justifying it in the name of religion, but she's not known for her power. But she can be, and she will be with the preaching of the gospel, in the believing of the gospel, in the power of the gospel. So I'm psyched about what God has done in these last five years as a church. Like seriously, praise God for five years of fighting for joy. I just want a hundred more. And if you're serious about fighting for joy in Jesus, this is how you do it, guys. We fight for joy with the power of Jesus. So let's pray and ask God for that. Uh, Heavenly Father, we don't want to be a church that just tries to follow you and just tries to get most things right and just talks about religion and looks down our nose at other people. We want to be a church that has the power of God through the gospel, obsessed with the crucifixion of Jesus, dependent on the power that only comes from the crucifixion of Jesus. Would you grant us that power in this moment? And would you grant us 100 more years of fighting for joy? Yeah. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.